So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O oh Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to say. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. This is the word of the Lord. It's the glory of kings to search a matter out. The Bible is a book that is open to you, but not totally open to you. It requires digging and it requires study and it requires finding keys which unlock understanding. And while that may sound mysterious, it's actually very simple. The Bible as a book, as a system of literature, contains the way that God has uh, inspired his authors over the years. The way that the Bible uh, is written, it contains a number of of uh, types of literary functions or literary elements, and understanding what those are is the key to understanding what the Bible uh, is, able, is, is attempting to say. That is, what the authors are intending to say. Not only that, God has not only inspired authors, but also through his sovereignty directed events in such a way that those who took place in the events really lived them, when, when we read Exodus 4, we really do believe that God spoke to Moses and gave him these three specific signs, but not only in the way that God has authentically woven history, but also superimposed upon that, there are signs, symbols, and, and patterns of meaning that give illumination to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And 
what that means is that the Bible has a way that it tries to speak. You can't just uh, pick up a Bible in French and immediately read it if you don't know French. Likewise, with English, you can read the Bible, but you can't fully read the Bible. And so what I'm getting at is today, if you open up Microsoft Word or Google Docs, you have a number of textual elements at your disposal. You can underline things, you can highlight things, you can use bullet points, you can use italic font, uh, you can make things larger, you can make things smaller. But the original manuscripts that the, the scriptures were written in do not have any of those elements. So the author cannot emphasize things with underlines or bolds. Uh, the, the author cannot put little footnotes here and there. It's just words on a piece of parchment, and they're in, in order. And in fact, even in the, the New Testament scriptures, there's no capital letters. And so the, the way in which the scripture was written in its original form the original authors who penned the scriptures, they did not have a way to dispose or emphasize things other than through the words themselves and what the words mean. And so when we come to, as Christians, when we come to read the scriptures, we're often presented with this idea, like the Old Testament is really the boring part that we have to read, and the New Testament's the really cool and fun part, which we like to read. And I would submit that that is, a, is because of a failure to understand how the Old Covenant scriptures are written in such a way as to illuminate the person and work of Jesus Christ. When I mean the person and work, I mean who Jesus Christ is as the Son of God to come, who was sent to come and atone for the sins of his people and to redeem a community for God, and also the work that is the actual doing of that salvific work or that work that he did on the cross. So not only is Jesus in his deity exoner, uh, um, uh, exemplified and and glorified through the Old Testament, but also in his going to the cross on your behalf. All of that is foreshadowed in the Old Covenant scriptures, and it takes time to uh, uh, to build a, uh, a toolbox, if you will, uh, with which you can dissect meaning in the Old Covenant. One of the things that you'll know if you buy a house, Sydney just got a house recently. Uh, many of us in the last year or two, Beth just got a house. Uh, many of us over the last few years, we've just purchased these houses. And one of the things you'll notice if you buy an old house or if you buy a new house, but especially with older homes is everything breaks eventually. And so you you acquire these tools. And one of the greatest things to do is don't go to Home Depot or Lowe's and drop $1,000 because you'll buy the wrong tools and you'll buy tools that you don't need. The best thing to do is over time, acquire a set of tools that are good quality tools that you can learn to use over time. You can't just buy a bunch of tools at, at Home Depot and then become a general contractor. It doesn't work. Likewise, it takes time to build a system of tools in your toolbox to understand the scriptures. And one of the greatest tools is the idea of a symbol. That is a literary device or a thing that foreshadows in its description of something that takes place in the life or work of Christ. And so we're going to look at this passage in that light. The reason why I think that this system of reading, this system of understanding the scriptures is better than the alternative is because it always brings the reader back to focusing on Christ. While you're learning to do this, if you get off on a tangent, if you're out there, you know, 
trying to dissect who the Nephilim are or, or this, these really weird Bible questions, you've missed the point. The point is to direct you to Jesus Christ, to what he has done in coming to this earth to pay for your sins. And so uh, it takes time and it also takes, a, a, it's like acquiring a taste. You don't just go out, you know, tomorrow and become a wine connoisseur or a coffee connoisseur. It takes years to build taste. Likewise, it takes time. And so these these ways of reading the scripture are superior. The only alternatives to reading the Old Testament is the, uh, the system of what we might call a moralistic reading. That is, uh, most of you are probably familiar with David and Goliath. It's one of the most popular stories from the Old Testament. And a moralistic reading of David and Goliath is this. David killed Goliath. He overcame his fears. He was this small guy, and he, by faith in God, slayed this big giant, and you can too. That's moralism. Although that is a Bible story, it's being presented in a way that's not consistent with what the Bible says about the the purpose of the Old Testament, which Jesus explained was to illuminate him. The purpose of David and Goliath is David killed Goliath. Likewise, Christ killed the giants of sin and Satan on your behalf where you could not. And because of that, you can now conquer Goliaths in your life, little tiny Goliaths. It's not that David killed Goliath, you should be like David, kill your Goliaths. It's not Gideon was a cowardly man, he overcame his fears, you can too. That's moralism. Rather, the, the way to understand the scriptures is to that all of the narratives, all of the stories point forward to Jesus Christ and illuminate and highlight a specific aspect that the gospels teach of but don't emphasize. So we're going to look at this passage in that, with that goal. What is Exodus 4 saying about Jesus Christ and what he's done? That's our, our chief question. So we're going to look at the actual signs that that happen in, that, that God gives to Moses. We're going to look at these three signs. They're, they're really weird if you just think about them uh, for a second. You know, Moses is doing this weird thing with his hand in a coat, and that's kind of creepy. Uh, and then we're going to look at what these signs actually symbolize. What is the meaning behind them? Or is, you know, is this an arbitrary thing that God's telling him to do? Or is there a meaning behind it? And then finally, we're going to look at each of the three signs really quickly, what they say in prefiguring Christ, that is foreshadowing or pointing towards Christ uh, in, the, in the future. So Moses is debating with God regarding his call. Um, if you if you come into Exodus four, if you don't know the rest of the story, Moses was originally like um, like many of of the different prophets of old. Um, the the Pharaoh had sent out a decree to kill all the male children, um, but let the women live, so that the Hebrews or the the Jews who were enslaved in in Egypt would become a weak nation. They wouldn't have enough men to revolt and overthrow their uh, captors, the Egyptians. So Pharaoh says, "Kill all the men for this generation," and then. Moses is basically hidden by his mother, and he's sent in a basket floating upon the waters, and Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses and takes Moses and raises her as his, uh, her own child. Moses grows up, is educated in the wisdom of Egypt, and then is uh, 
he realizes one day over time, you know, different people communicate with him. He realizes he's not an Egyptian, but actually he's an Israelite. He's a Hebrew. And so he, Moses is raised in the house of Pharaoh to be the Prince of Egypt. Uh, Maybe you've seen the movie Prince of Egypt by Disney. Um, It it at least gives you some of the character names and, you know, it's a pretty good story. Um, Moses then kills an Egyptian uh, taskmaster who is beating one of the Israelite slaves. And because of that, Moses runs away and basically goes into the wilderness. In the wilderness, God calls Moses and commands him to lead his people out of Egypt. And in so doing, God works with Moses, preparing him, calling him, making uh, him ready. And then once he's ready, he sends he sends Moses in back into Egypt for specific mission to execute judgments on God's behalf against the nation of, of Egypt. When Moses gets this commission, he, in this chapter, is debating with God. How many of us have done that from time to time? God, God is sending us on this mighty mission, or even small mission, and we debate with God. Moses here is debating with God. So God gives him these signs and wonders to perform, and in verse uh, verses 1 and 8, then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. If you don't notice, that's a response to the the contents of the previous chapter where God tells him to go. And so Moses is saying, they're not going to listen to my voice. They will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Uh, Verse eight, God replies, if they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. So God is specifically giving these signs to, to allow Moses to demonstrate his authority before the Israelites. Yahweh tells Moses to cast down his staff and it becomes a snake and to morph his hand from leprosy to health. Leprosy in the old, uh, in the old covenant scriptures is a, uh, a specific disease. It still exists today, although with soap you can you know, usually combat it. Leprosy is a disease which completely withers and shrivels up a, a limb or a part of your body or a patch on a limb, uh, you know, either a limb or on your on your, uh, you know, abdomen, torso, etc., and leprosy is an infection, and it's a it's a uh, it's a place where the body of the individual is alive, and blood still flowing, but yet there's death in the midst of it. It's kind of like if you've ever searched for pictures of gangrene. Um, gangrene and leprosy are, are kind of similar, not totally the same, but but basically, leprosy is a a thing that will completely destroy a hand, a foot, a part of your body, and it, it is a sign of death on a person's body. It's an extremely bad situation to be in. So this is a weird sign, but even these two signs that God gives to Moses, which he commands him to do before the Israelites to demonstrate his authority, he gives still a further sign, a third one. He says in verse 9, God says to Moses, If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some of the water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. So Moses takes water out of the Nile, not out of just anywhere. He takes it out of the Nile and then he pours it on the dry ground. And in pouring it upon the dry ground, it becomes blood. 
Now, to understand the significance of that, we have to understand what these things actually mean. God is not about the business of telling people to just perform magic signs in order to demonstrate arbitrary authority. There is purpose behind these specific signs and symbols, and that's what our desire is to look at today. So God gives Moses these two or three signs pointing to the fact that which will later be established that every fact or every matter will be confirmed and established by two or three witnesses. That's a major pattern of understanding in the scriptures, two or three witnesses. So the staff is authority. That's what it means. When Moses has this staff and he throws it down, he is doing something and he's saying something about his trust in God. The staff is a man's authority. Kings rule with rods. Have you ever seen a picture of a king, maybe uh, on a playing card, if you will? Uh, they have in their hand, either a, uh, some of them have swords. I'm sure you could ask either Mr. Hale or Mr. Trimbach, they know probably which kings have which, but kings hold swords and they hold rods. And so a staff for Moses is a sign of authority. Magicians do their charming with wands and shepherds guard over their flocks with crooks. Moses is the shepherd of Israel that God has installed as a leader. And in this place, Moses casting down his staff is a specific symbol where Moses demonstrates his trust in Yahweh more than any implement of his own choosing. Whenever you go to uh, old, uh, kind of old world um, nations where there's a lot of mountains or, or areas where there's a lot of dangerous uh, land to traverse, they always have a staff. If you go to Switzerland, they actually have these staffs that they pass down generation upon generation. It's beautiful. They, they spend all, these time, uh, all this time ornately uh, making these staffs, and they, they take on a greater symbol and purpose than just a simple cane. And so Moses, in casting down his staff, he demonstrates that he trusts Yahweh and that Yahweh's authority is greater than even his own authority. It doesn't say that Yahweh specifically gave Moses the staff. Moses had the staff while he was wandering in the, uh, in the wilderness. And so in a very real way, Moses is even saying, I don't even trust on the implement or the, the object, the instrument that I chose, but rather I trust in God. The hand is obviously the strength of a man. With a, with a hand, a man tills the ground, chops down timber, or hews out stone. That is, a man works with his hands. And Moses, in doing this sign, again, demonstrates trust in Yahweh. He shows that his own hand is ashen. It eventually will become ashy, gray, dead. Moses will die. And in doing this, Moses is prefiguring his own uh, frailty. Moses is a man. As a, the book of Ecclesiastes says, all flesh is like grass, which quickly withers and fades. And so Moses is demonstrating, not only does God have the authority to heal, to make clean, and to make unclean, but also that he one day will suffer the same fate. He is not trusting in his own power, but rather in the power of God. When, when we talk about Jesus going to the right hand of the Father, we understand that that language in the Bible is used to describe the place of authority and power, the place of, of, um, the, the place of, of wielding authority over a kingdom. 
And so finally, turning the water of the Nile to blood shows the scope of God's judgment against Egypt. Egypt was given a specific role in time, space, history at that moment uh, on the world scene uh, to establish an economic provision on the earth. If you don't know the, the backstory to this, when Joseph goes down to, uh, to Egypt 400 years before Moses' day, uh, Joseph goes down and is, like, jo- like Moses, established to this second-in-command position. And Joseph interprets a dream that Pharaoh has, and this dream that Pharaoh has is basically this. There are seven fat cows, and there are seven lean cows. And at the end, uh, in the dream, the seven lean cows, the skinny cows, eat up and consume totally the seven fat cows. And Joseph interprets the dream saying that the cows are years. God has ordained and has told you, Pharaoh, beforehand that you will have seven years of plenty and seven years of famine, and the famine will be so great that that all of the years of the famine will consume even all your provisions that you would have had for the seven years. So what does Pharaoh do upon that interpretation? He invests and he buys up land. And he stores up grain such that it says in the scriptures that all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain. Now, that's probably literally referring to the majority nations around in the Middle East and Far East. They come down to Egypt and probably the nations of Africa as well. They come to Egypt and give their gold over so that they can eat. Egypt is established by Yahweh as the economic powerhouse of the earth. And in so doing, the Nile is the source of their agricultural power. Without the Nile, Egypt cannot grow anything. It's, it's that way to this day. If you go to Egypt, it's all a desert. But if you go around the Nile, it's all farmland. And without the Nile, they cannot produce any grain. They will be in a disaster. And this is exactly what God is symbolizing through turning the Nile to blood. And in fact, it's foreshadowing the future judgment in the 10 plagues that God does. God does turn the whole Nile to blood. So God has noticed the suffering cries of his people under the oppression of the Egyptians. And because of that, he comes, that that oppression, that pride that the Pharaoh and his taskmasters are exercising in their harsh treatment of the Israelites, that has arisen before the Lord as a stench in his nostrils. And Yahweh is coming to judge Egypt in, in righteous anger. So this symbol is the foundation of identifying the turning of moon to blood in Joel 2 and Acts 2, talking about the nations uh, which God has established being judged. And likewise, that which is white and clear, it suddenly becomes red. If you think of it like a piece of flesh being pierced with a sword, there is a judgment coming against Egypt. Now that's all nice and good, but what does it mean and what does it have to do with Jesus Christ? That's a great question you may ask. After Peter and John raised the lame man up at Solomon's portico in the book of Acts, they give a defense for the gospel speaking to their fellow Israelites. Peter and John, they are apostles that Jesus has called to himself, and they perform a miracle after Jesus has already ascended, after the Holy Spirit's already been poured out, and the church has begun. And so Peter and John do this thing, and then they explain what uh, is the key foundation for using this system of interpretation. In Acts 3, 22 through 23, Moses said, 
They're quoting Moses. This is Peter and John quoting Moses. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me, that is like Moses, from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed from the people. So what Moses is saying is that the prophet that Yahweh raises up is going to be like him. And in understanding that, this is a quotation from another place in Deuteronomy. Um, in understanding that, there are parallels between Moses' life and Jesus' life, such that what happens to Moses, we should look at, at least look for, uh, ways to understand how it applies to Jesus Christ. For example, with I, I already mentioned that Moses had, do, had, uh, had escaped death by the the women, uh, the midwife sending, uh, sorry, Moses' mother sending him along the Nile. Likewise, when Jesus comes around on the scene, Herod gives a decree that all the male children of Israel should be killed, and they escape that judgment by going down where? Into Egypt. And so Jesus's life and Moses's life have so many parallels, it's impossible to enumerate. But um, with that understanding, what does what do these symbols say of Jesus Christ? Every aspect of Moses' ministry, to one degree or another, not perfectly, but at least uh, in an interpretive framework of, of poetry and symbolism, prefigures Jesus. That is, Moses leads the people of Israel out of Egypt through the Jordan. Likewise, Christ leads us out of sin and bondage, commanding us to be baptized. We, like the Israelites who pass through the Jordan, also pass through the water. The symbols and the, the parallels are clear. So knowing this, we ought to read Moses and all of the Old Testament looking for Christ. If you don't, the Old Testament will be boring. It will be absolutely a chore, and it won't be fun. Um, imagine that. The Bible could be fun. Of course, when we make connections, they should be appropriate, and they shouldn't be just willy-nilly or, oh, there's you know this word here and that word there. They should be done with practice over time, and also the New Testament shows us the way forward. And so in laying down his staff, of course, Moses is demonstrating trust in God, and likewise, Christ did the, the very same thing in laying down his life and taking it back up again. Jesus demonstrates his authority uh, before Israel uh, by rising from the dead. One of the things to understand is the resurrection from the dead that Jesus does is not only him defeating death for you, but it also is the vindication or the, the verification by God of all the claims that Jesus Christ made. So imagine you're an Israelite, and there's this guy who's running around, and he's saying that he's the Son of God, and that you have to trust in him, and you have to follow him. Imagine hearing that. Now, you've grown up with the law. You've grown up with a system of scribes and teachers who run around and you know teach the word in synagogue and this, that, and the other thing, and you hear this strange person coming around saying, that you have to trust in him and follow him, and that he is the way, the truth, and the life. How do you know that that person's not crazy? If, if someone told you on the bus that three days after today, they're going, to, they're going to die today, and three days later going to be raised from the dead, you would think they're crazy. And that's probably true. They probably would be crazy. Anyone who makes such a claim either has to be crazy or correct. And so what Jesus does in taking up his life, just like Moses took up his staff, 
his his authority is Jesus is wielding power and demonstrating to Israel my claims of deity and my claims of exclusivity. That is, there is no other name in, under heaven which by men might be saved. Those two claims are true. Of course, if that man who told you on the bus did come back to life after three days later, you might stop thinking he's crazy. Um, rest assured, that won't ever happen to you, but just imagine the scenario. And so Jesus, just like Moses, picks up his life, just like Moses picked up his staff, and by that has demonstrated to all of Israel that he is the true shepherd of Israel. Jesus Christ is not some fringe teacher. It's not some new way of doing things. This is God's specific command for the nation of Israel at this time. Uh, John 10, 17 through 18, Jesus even describes this, for the reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. Now, if you ever heard someone say that they could take up their life after they died, again, you would think that's pretty ridiculous. Jesus says this in verse 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and to take it back up again. This charge I have received from my father. So when Moses does this with the staff, he turns it to a a snake and then takes it up by the tail and receives it. That should remind us of Jesus's words, his own words in which he said, I have the authority to, to lay down my life and to take it up again. That is an amazing claim that only a person who is also God could make. Likewise, Jesus Christ can also make a withered hand whole again. You see, Moses, in doing this, of putting his hand in the cloak and pulling it out and it's leprous, and then putting it back in and pulling it out again and it's clean, is demonstrating that God has the authority to decide who is in the nation of Israel, that is, who is in the people of God, and who is out. If you were leprous in the Old Covenant, you had to, it was a law command, you had to leave the people. You had to go away from your home. You had to leave your father. You had to leave your mother. You had to leave your siblings. If you were married, you had to leave your spouse. You had to go to a town of lepers. And Jesus, uh, over and over again in the Gospels, demonstrates his authority over leprosy. And so Moses, by doing this sign that God has commanded, he is saying to Israel, God has the power to make ill and to make clean. He is sovereign and Lord over all. Matthew 12, uh, 9 through 14, he went on from there and entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. Now, that withering is is not a clear, precise description of leprosy, but it's close enough to get the meaning across. Verse 10, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, the Pharisees and Sadducees here, they are asking Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? To understand the the hypocrisy of their question, you have to, to realize that in the system of law that the Pharisees and Sadducees had created around the original law that God gave through Moses, they allowed exceptions for work to be done on the Sabbath or not, depending on if a person's life was at risk or if it was just, you know, kind of a you know, it's just a cold, you don't need to see a doctor kind of thing. And so in asking this question, they are asking Jesus to decide between two opinions. Are you going to be merciful or are you going to be cruel and correct with our interpretation of the law? It says, Matthew says, so that they might accuse him. 
Verse 11, he said to them, which of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? It was a commandment by God in the book of Exodus that if you see your neighbor's ox, donkey, sheep, or other livestock fall into a pit, you have to go and restore it. It was God's command to Israel, if you see your neighbor's property in distress, you have to do something about it. You can't just leave it there. So Jesus is saying that the the other part of the law interprets whether it's right to heal on the Sabbath or not. He's saying, which of you will break the law? Because he says, which of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? You are allowed to do particular things to restore life on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees and Sadducees are trying to trap Jesus in a a bind. This is a catch-22. Verse 12, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. Now, a withered hand is a hand that has either lost nerve uh, connectivity or lost blood flow or is filled with some sort of uh, necrosis kind of infection. And for Jesus to restore a withered hand at the command of his voice is demonstrating that he has the authority that Yahweh gave to Moses. That is, he's the true shepherd of Israel and he is coming. God has sent him into the earth. It says, uh, and the man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other, verse 14. But the Pharisees at that time went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. At this moment in the book of Matthew, that's when the Pharisees begin to really go after Jesus because they get the symbol. They get the sign. They understand what Jesus is saying, that not only is their interpretation of the law wrong, and therefore they're following God in the wrong way, but also he really has been sent by God. He has authority not over the physical body, but also to reverse the effects of infection and disease. This man is a miracle worker. He can't be anyone other than God himself. The Pharisees present this question to Jesus to either charge him as a weak, cruel, and powerless person or as a Sabbath breaker. It's just like when they ask Jesus, should we pay taxes or not? Jesus is basically, uh, you know, he has two options. Do I say yes and be accused of conspiring with the Romans, or do I say no and then am guilty of conspiring against the Romans? The Pharisees are not interested as their question indicates that they're not interested in a true answer. They're interested in catching uh, Jesus off guard. This is kind of like those type of questions like, can God make a burrito that's so hot he can't even eat it? Have you heard these things? That sort of question, that sort of question indicates more about you than it does about God. And the answer is yes. Of course, God can eat any burrito he likes. The point is, the point is, that those sorts of questions are just, that question's quite dumb. But the Pharisees' question is full of hypocrisy. They don't want an answer. They want to catch Jesus in a bind. And just as God had told Moses to demonstrate authority against his rivals, Jesus Christ demolishes the Pharisees' accusations by demonstrating his own authority over sickness and death. And so finally, we come to the last 
symbol, and this is where it really comes home to the gospel. And when we come to the cross, after Jesus Christ has fully atoned for your sins and mine, his side is pierced. And rather than turning water to blood like Moses did when he showed that God's judgment against Egypt must be severe, Jesus uh, from his side allows water and blood to flow. That is, this is God's judgment against sin. It took the death of Jesus Christ. Whereas Egypt and the pride of Pharaoh had risen like a stench in the nostrils of Yahweh, so also our sins were so grievous and so heinous that it caused the death of the Son of God. And this he did for you in absolute mercy and grace. Without being angry, completely absorbing the wrath that Yahweh had against your sin, and he shows you that he has authority over not only death and life, but also sin, and therefore offers you completely free forgiveness. Where Moses turned water to blood, Jesus shows that water comes out of blood. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We do ask, Lord, that you would give us an understanding of your word such that we see Jesus Christ in every verse, in every phrase. Lord, we ask that you would give us patience as we learn to read your word, that you would give us a system of understanding that is not academic, but Lord, that is actually truly valuable, that we would see your offer of grace and mercy on every page. Lord, what Moses has has done for the Israelites in bringing Egypt out, uh, bringing Israel out of Egypt, Lord, your son has done in bringing us out of a land of sin and death. Lord, we ask that you would deliver us from all those uh, things which would prevent us from taking a hold of your grace. We ask, Lord, that we would believe your offer of forgiveness, that by turning from our sins, by being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, that we can be completely washed and made whole. Lord, we ask you that you would give us a great understanding of of mercy and grace, that you have totally absorbed all of the wrath by going to the cross and paying for our sins. But not only that, that you offer us, even in the moment that you're dying for us, you offer us complete grace. Lord, we ask you that you would give us this mighty faith in Jesus' name. Amen.